Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining today's Keeping It Simple webinar. My name is Shang Chow. Uh, I'm an ETF strategist here at Simplify Asset Management. Today joining Simplify's Harley Bassman and Michael Green is a very special guest, David Rosenberg. David needs no introduction. He's enjoyed an illustrious three-decade career on both Wall Street and Bay Street as a top-ranked economist and market strategist. His daily economic commentary, Breakfast with Dave, is read and followed by investors around the world. David's currently the founder and president of Rosenberg Research, which he launched in 2020. Prior, David served as chief economist and strategist at Gluskin Chef. And prior to that, he was at Merrill Lynch, where he served as chief North American economist, as well as chief economist and strategist for Merrill Lynch Canada. Uh, before we dive in, uh, why don't we start off with a quick poll? Do we have that ready to go? Okay, for the viewers at home, uh, let's, uh, we'll do this quick poll, three questions. Will the peak rate be over or under 4%, over or under, pick one? Will the Fed cut rates in 2023? Yes, no, I don't know. And number three, what will annualized inflation be for the last three months of 2022? We'll give folks at home a few minutes to, to do this. I feel robbed because that final question, the greater than 4% was supposed to be, don't step in it. You'll get your chance, Mike. All righty, it looks like the results are in. Uh, before we dive in, you know, just a quick uh, plug. Today, we have a very special treat for viewers at home. Uh, David and his team have kindly offered access to a one-month free trial to Rosenberg Research. Uh, to get access, simply send an email to information at rosenbergresearch.com. Again, that's information at rosenbergresearch.com. And to learn more, certainly follow him on Twitter, where he tweets under the handle at econguyrosie. That's at econguyrosie, R-O-S-I-E. And uh, two quick uh, housekeeping items as well. Uh, for folks viewing from home, uh, just a quick reminder, if you have questions, feel free to use the Q&A button on your screen. And just a friendly reminder for our audience that nothing said on today's show should be construed as investment advice. It's for entertainment purposes only. And with that, I'll hand it over to you, Mike. Fantastic. Shank, thank you very much. Um, and again, I'm thrilled that we can keep bringing on different members of the Simplify team to introduce people uh, as we go through the Keeping It Simple podcast series. This time around as our guest, we have David Rosenberg. David actually had the opportunity to work with Harley when the two of them were at Merrill Lynch. And that was during the transition to the global financial crisis. I interacted with Dave during that time. We were two of the housing bears in the market. Um, he came out and spoke to us when I was at Canyon Partners. And I'll never forget how confident people were in 2007 that the concept of a housing-induced recession or financial crisis was complete bunk. Right? David was as defensive, if not more so then, I think he's a little bit less defensive this time, in part because he was he knew he was right last time, right? So it gives you a little bit of relaxation in some ways, I would suggest. Um, and I actually just realized that I have black beans that are boiling on the stove because I can smell them, so I have to rush off very quickly. But David, I'd like to make that introduction um, and have you very quickly just give your background, uh, starting with, with uh, uh, the work that you did at Merrill Lynch and then transitioning to Gluckman Chef up in Canada, and then today, what you focus on at Rosenberg Research. Well, uh, thanks very much, uh, Michael, and uh, it's great to be on, especially with my old pal, uh, Harley. 
uh, we did battle together at those morning meetings at Merrill uh, for uh, for the seven years that I was in New York, uh, and, and we we were bloodied but uh, unbowed, and and here we are today. Uh, look, I'll just say that you know um, my dream was always uh, to start my own uh, economic and market strategy consulting business. And when I moved back to Toronto from New York in 09, uh, I was approached by a lot of people uh, who wanted to back me uh, to do this endeavor. But uh, two things, uh, I wanted to uh, reestablish, uh, you know, my family life. I had three young kids uh, and I was the, a road warrior at Merrill for those seven years. Um, but also, you know, when I got the offer from Gluskin Chef, people were raising their eyebrows, who's Gluskin Chef? And they're, they're a boutique um, uh, mutual fund uh, in Toronto. And uh, when they approached me uh, to be their chief economist and strategist, uh, I thought, you know, that's the one missing link in my career. Uh, I was a sell side economist and strategist uh, for my entire life. Um, and, you know, when you're the chief economist of Merrill Lynch, you, you know, they say check the ego at the door. No, but good luck with that. But, you know, you think you're the starting pitcher on the New York Yankees. Um, but I, I, I wanted to round things out working at an institution by going to the buy side. Uh, and I actually, I got to say that the, the experience at Merrill was uh, absolutely wonderful. And, and of course, it gave me uh, the pulpit and the notoriety. Um, but I probably learned more, you know, in my, I can't believe it was 11 years. I, I, I learned more in my 11 years at Gluskin Chef uh, than I did on my previous whatever, you know, uh, 25 years uh, on the street. Uh, because, you know, you think that because you go from boardroom to boardroom and city to city and you meet with faceless names, nameless faces around a boardroom that you think you have it figured out. Uh, but it wasn't until I joined Glaskin Chef that I really figure out how the brain of a portfolio manager and a CIO really work. Um, you know, I, I would actually have done how I how I construct and portray a forecast totally differently because I realize that it's always shades of gray. There's a base case scenario, but there's always um, it, it, what your plan B and plan C and plan D are going to be if you're wrong. So I figured out right away that the brain of a portfolio manager and a CIO is just one, uh, you know, very significant probability curve, a distribution curve of outcomes, and you can't rule anything out. And you don't put all your eggs in one basket. So, you know, sitting out there with the investment team day in, day out, really 24-7, I can't tell you how much I learned. Uh, how much I learned with my skill set, how I could be useful uh, for people that manage wealth. Uh, and I thought I had it figured out at Merrill. Um, I might have figured out, you know, how to do forecasting and how to give public speeches, but how to be truly relevant for institutional investors. Um, I learned a great deal uh, about that uh, in those 11 years at Gluskin Chef. And uh, then I felt I was just ready to start my own business, you know, having all that experience on the sell side and the buy side and figuring out how to really connect the dots between macro and markets. I said, okay, I, I got to start calling my own shots, building my own team and doing this on my own. And that was the genesis for uh, starting the firm in January, 2020, two months before COVID. So yep. once again, brilliant timing. <laughs> but that was basically uh, the story behind the story. Well, one of the things that you're saying, I think is, is 
100% in sync with my general experience and, and my old mentor, Mitch Julis of Canyon Partners used to describe it as where you stand depends on where you sit, right? And so it's very easy to say to a bond fund manager, bonds are return-free risk, but a bond fund manager is still going to have to manage bonds, right? They can't just go to cash. They can't go buy equities exclusively, et cetera. And so the, the institutional framework that you're describing working within the confines of a portfolio is certainly one of the things that I struggle with, you know, as I think about the dynamics of asset allocation, recommendations, how to position yourself, et cetera. Now, one of the questions that has been brought up and what a debate that Harley and I have had over and over and over again, is this current environment of inflation? And, you know, Harley, I think, has a very valid point when he says, are you going to believe you know, the, uh, the, the definitions, or are you going to believe your own eyes, right? Are you going to see the rising prices that we're seeing in front of us? I struggle with the current, quote unquote, inflationary environment, because what I see is not so much inflation as much as a massive shift in relative prices that's been created by changing demand patterns, um, shortages in supply chains, difficulties in supply chains, turning back on post-COVID, et cetera. I'd be interested in your perspective on what we're seeing with the current level of high elevated prices. Is this the long-awaited inflation? Are we in an inflationary regime that changes the game radically versus the one that you and I have largely occupied for the past 20 years, which has by and large been one of deflationary conditions? Has something changed markedly? Well, look, I guess an answer to some of the points that you made. Um, I think that the inflation that we had um, transcended just relative uh, price shifts. I think that was certainly the case uh, at the beginning uh, when we started getting the acceleration in inflation. It was relative. Uh, and then, of course, you had the Fed accommodating all the fiscal largesse, um, you know, at a time when the economy was reopening. So the timing was ripe for a real burst of inflation. And you can see whether you look at uh, the trim mean numbers or the median numbers that the inflation really did broaden out. Uh, and there's no question that it really started a lot with the energy side. And although we always focus on core inflation, uh, you know, and, you know, they say X food and energy, but there's a lot of items say like, you know, um, airlines or utilities that are energy sensitive uh, that, you know, fed into the core inflation rate as well. Uh, you know, my major point is this, I think we had a wild uh, gyration in the long-term trend line in inflation, which I still think is down, not up uh, for a variety of fundamental reasons. You know, look, we we finished off the 20, 2019 before COVID, unemployment's three and a half percent. The participation rate is going down. Participation rate peaked in, in 2000. It's been going down, it's been going down for 22 years. This retirement theme started when the boomers first hit 55, uh, two decades ago. Uh, that's really nothing new. And, and of course, we lamented about uh, Trump building this immigrant wall around labor and labor shortage. If you go to the NFIB numbers, small business were lamenting about uh, worker shortages back in 2019. Unemployment rates three and a half percent, and wages are running at what three to four percent. Core inflation is around two percent. Uh, you know, we had a, the longest economic expansion on record. Uh, we came off massive tax cuts uh, from the Trump team in 2018, uh, and we had uh, the tightest labor market uh, at the end of 2019 since uh, since 1970. 
and where was underlying inflation. Now, admittedly, it's an imperfect statistic and there's hedonics and there's imputations. And I fully agree with what you're saying. It's there's no piece of data that's actually perfect, and I respect that. But the thing about the inflation rate is that you can go back in history and compare it to where we've been and look and see we have a one or two or three sigma event going on. Um, but where was, at a time of full employment, gargantuan fiscal deficits, tax cuts, uh, a restriction on labor uh, from the immigration side, 3.5% unemployment, uh, and underlying inflation going into COVID was around 2%. And what's the Fed doing in 2019? Uh, they're cutting rates and re-expanding the balance sheet, yep. the famous uh, Powell pivot. Dave, I don't, I, then I, we I don't got, well, I'll just, let me just make the point that, but then we got hit with several shocks. Uh, COVID turned into be a cost push inflationary shock. And then we had rampant fiscal stimulus that was accommodated by the central banks globally. Uh, but who knew at the time that we we're going to get a vaccine that quickly? Everybody thought it was going to take five years to get a vaccine. There was a time we thought this was going to be the bubonic plague. It was not the bubonic plague. Vaccines came early. The economy reopened early. And uh, yet the governments um, continued to stimulate dramatically, and especially the Biden budget buster in March of 2021, which is really was not the smartest move in the world um, and accommodated by the Fed. Uh, then we go into uh, the beginning of this year, we get the Omicron, uh, we get the Chinese lockdowns, uh, we get the war in Ukraine, uh, another series of shocks that caused the global aggregate supply curve to become increasingly inelastic and at a time when demand was still being fed off of the lagged impact of the fiscal policy. That's all true. We can't deny that we had a massive inflation shock. But, you know, people laugh at the transitory people, but I would say that in the overall annals of economic history, 16 months, which is what the inflation bulge was, is was not the 1970s, this is not a decade, 16 months of inflation uh, that we can explain. Uh, and the reaction function has changed. Um, the Fed, this is not the same Fed that was generating the inflation uh, 12 or 24 months ago. This is a different Fed. Uh, this is not the same fiscal policy, maybe thanks to Joe Manchin. The fiscal stimulus is basically over. And, uh, you know, when you're taking a look at this year, the fiscal deficit is going to be down more than 70%. And it's not because we have a booming economy generating tax revenues. Government spending, and I imagine that the remnants of the Tea Party are dancing right now, who's ever left, government spending is down more than 20% this year. Uh, and so it's a different fiscal policy. Uh, and we'll see what happens after the midterms. Different fiscal policy, different monetary policy. Uh, you're seeing right now uh, that the effects of the COVID are subsiding. You're seeing it in transportation costs. You're seeing it in commodity prices. Uh, you're seeing it in the supply bottlenecks. I mean, we just got the ISM supply. You know, this vendor delivery delays is really the poster child for supply bottlenecks. They're back to where they were at the beginning of 2020, order backlogs, all the stuff that was generating the supply side inflation um, has subsided. And I would say the one thing about the, the employment numbers came out last Friday that was very heartening for me. Now it was just one month, admittedly. But we're starting to see the participation rate start to go up for some very critical demographic areas. Um, uh, working moms, uh, the female participation rate, 25 to 34 uh, that's actually went up to a record high. That's really yep. encouraging. 
uh, the youth the youth participation rate went up, which means that wages have gone up enough to attract these low skilled young workers uh, back into the labor market. Uh, so we've seen the wage reset attract people back in. And what happened to the great resignation theme? Well, the great resignation theme uh, got resigned because of the bear market inequities, because people could see what's happened to the 401ks and that they can't actually have the comfortable retirement lifestyle they thought they could have last December, early January, when the stock market was hitting new highs. So you're seeing male participation rates 55 and up, which is, I think, well, me and Harley anyways, that participation rate's going up. So we're seeing a bit of a thaw. Of course, you saw the unemployment rate go up 20 basis points. Again, encouraging. We'll see if it continues. But I think we're starting to develop more slack. Look, I focus on supply and demand. Uh, and what's changed is when you're taking a look, the supply side is starting to thaw out. Industrial production in the U.S. is up 4% year over year. Uh, I am cheering that. I'm cheering that. Production is up and it's fairly broadly based. But you see consumer spending in real terms is up 2% year over year. Mm -hmm. so what's happening is the supply side now, this is something brand spanking new that we haven't seen before in the past 18 months, is the supply side is not just caught up to the demand side, but the supply side of the economy is now overtaking the demand side. And we have aggregate supply outpacing aggregate demand, which is the new story going forward. Inflation is going to come back down. And the question Dave, is how, all due respect, how much. Hang on, Dave, with all due respect to Ernie Shavers, um, you keep using the past tense for inflation. Inflation was or this or that. In, in December of last year, you know, you said that inflation had peaked at 6.8% and advised everyone to buy 30-year zeros. They're now down 35%. I mean, wh why do we think, and by the way, we already had the vaccine by then. So why is it past tense right now for inflation? I mean, oil's not going down. Immigration and, and, and supply of people ain't going up. I, I'm not sure what, exactly what things have have changed, that's the inflation's gonna to drop to, I mean, does it go from nine to seven? Fine, you call that going down, I'll give you a win there. But I mean, this notion of inflation going to, you know, two or 3% very soon seems preposterous to me. Inflation's here and, and, and the things are driving it ain't going away. Look, we had um, for different reasons, so the inflation is not 9% anyways, so th that's just not true. Um, but, you know, we had the, China, we, you know, I had the same debate when I was at Merrill, and you were probably at those meetings back in 08. And in 08, and we can pick and choose, Harley, about who got calls right and wrong, and uh, I'm not perfect, and I've gotten calls wrong. Uh, and uh, and I could do a laundry list of your wrong calls, too. I, so I wonder what's not, changed that, 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 now that's, again, though. Let me just say, that, but that's, look, that's not going to help people on, on the call, okay? Uh, in the summer of 2008, inflation got close to 6%, which back then was a really a multi-decade high. Admittedly, it wasn't eight plus. Uh, oil got to $150, and everybody was talking about global decoupling and the China-led commodity supercycle. Uh, I got into major debates within Merrill Lynch and, and with you uh, and with management. Uh, and I said inflation was gonna fall like a stone. Um, and so nobody was predicting in the summer of 08. And by the way, uh, the Bernanke Fed shifted in the summer of 08, two months before mm -hmm. Lehman collapsed and before Mother Merrill was swallowed up by Bank America, Bernanke shifted to a de facto tightening bias and Trichet actually raised interest rates in July of 2008. And inflation went from 6%, 12 months later, it's minus two, minus two. 
so yeah, inflation under certain circumstances can fall very significantly. If you're taking a look from a much higher level, inflation plunged uh, in the uh, after it peaked in 1980. It plunged. Inflation can actually come down very, very quickly. And it's not because of the things you're talking about. Service sector inflation is always sticky. Uh, the rents are imputed. They're not real market rents. They'll be slow to come down. But the swing factor in the deflation is always coming out of the good sector, the product sector, the things you can see, touch, or feel. And that's 40% of the CPI. Now, you just told me that oil prices aren't coming down, uh, but oil's down like 35%. Virtually every commodity, and, and even in the food, even in, in the, uh, if you go to the wholesale price market, uh, there's been a, a broadly based plunge. Uh, you've seen it in lumber, iron ore, steel rebar. You've seen it in, in, in nickel, aluminum, copper, and it's now wheat, corn, soybeans, livestock are down between 10 and 70%. Commodity prices are plunging. That hasn't shown up in the data yet. And the U.S. dollar is up 15% on a year-over-year -year basis, which has happened the grand total of five times in the past five decades. And again, that acts with lags in terms of what it means for inflation. Harley, uh, import prices are down three months in a row. The best leading indicator for inflation is, uh, is the core crude PPI. The very back end of the production process, X food and energy has been negative now for three straight months. Now that doesn't do anything for service sector inflation admittedly, but the good side uh, what the dollar is going to impact and the commodity price, commodity prices are plunging. I don't know how you can say oil hasn't come down. Oil has come down has come from down. $124 just... down towards, towards the low 80s. So oil, and this will, of course, feed through in other things, utilities. It'll feed through in the airfares. You're already starting to see it. So I think that inflation is going to fall dramatically. Now, your point is well taken that uh, about, you know, my call on the bond market. But, you know, uh, before then, it's just like the Fed back then was in, um, you know, we're on the sidelines camp. Uh, I thought that Powell talked about pivoting. If you took Powell's Jackson Hole speech from what he just gave last month to the one he gave in August of 2021. In August 2021, his whole speech was about the secular decline in inflation and the structural factors for why that picture hasn't changed. Now, I still believe that, although it doesn't look like he does, or he's under tremendous political pressure to kill inflation because it's all landed on Biden's lap. And the Fed is a political institution. Uh, it is a construct of the of, of, the, of Congress and, and the head of the Fed, the uh, chairperson uh, is appointed uh, by the president. Uh, so in a 12 month span, something certainly shifted. Now, I agree in those secular forces of disinflation. I don't think that that trend line has been violated, even though we had this massive gyration from COVID and a war. Now, with all deference, we know history. Uh, we have a sample size of one. The last time we had a war and a health crisis, a global health crisis coincide with each other was back from 1916 to 1920. We had, well, we had the war first and then we had the Spanish flu. This time around we had the COVID, then we had the first shooting war in 80 years in Europe. Uh, wars for a temporary period are inflationary. Now I got news for you. We didn't have 16 months of, of inflation uh, in that period around the Spanish flu uh, and World War I. We had five years in a row of double-digit inflation. And then once those pressures subsided, because the war ended, the Spanish flu did burn out, and then we had 10 years 
of disinflation and then deflation leading up to the crash of 1929. But we had a decade of no inflation. Once these pressures subsided, we went back to where things were before World War One and before the Spanish flu took hold. I think we're going to go back to that world. I can understand that some things have changed, but I think that the fundamental factors of aging demographics uh, and uh, advanced technology uh, and this onerous debt level, which I talked about incessantly at Merrill, how, how and that's why, for example, Japan can Doesn't never matter, yes. inflation is because of its debt morass. That's a critical constraint. That's their demographic more than debt. So, the, so, the, look, so the point I'm making is that what's happened with the bond market is this. Inflation expectations haven't gone up, Harley. Uh, we, we look at the five-year, five-year forwards. We look at the 10-year tips break-evens. This has not been about inflation expectations. Those numbers. What's happened in the bond market has the been, the bond market, market. Has, the bond market has reset. The bond market has reset. For the time being, the bond market has reset its expectations on what the Fed is going to do with the cost to carry. So this has all been, this backup in yields has not been, and that's fine because at some point the Fed will stop and at some point the Fed will ease because interest rates are cyclical. But I'd be more worried about my bond call if I saw inflation expectations still ratcheting higher. But inflation expectations have been coming down pretty steadily actually since April. And this has all been basically the Fed taking the carry away. Well, let me go, let me I mean, that's, that's not a permanent, that's no reason to be permanently bearish. I don't care market. about the predictions for inflation because they're all made up anyways for both of us. So let's, go ahead. let's talk about where the rubber meets the road. What is the Fed going to do? I propose that we're not going to have inflation. Maybe you're right. And it, it goes down precipitously. It goes down by half. goes to four. Okay. Um, and so that would be a win for you. Inflation comes down hard. It's still well above two. I don't see how Powell whose ego is, I'm not going to go down as Arthur Burns. I'm going to go down as Paul Volcker on his tombstone. I don't see how he's cutting rates anytime soon. So the question for you is, notwithstanding your prediction of things, what will the Fed actually do for the remainder of this year and the beginning of next year? Well, the, the, Volcker was slicing interest rates long before it got down to 4%. Long before it got the Powell going to do? I don't care about Volcker. What's well, Powell Powell, do? well, Powell. Well, look, the the Fed. I mean, look when you get, um, you know, when you get the doves, you know, like Kashkari, uh, and like Mary Daly, uh, and um, Lyle Brainerd and Evans from Chicago, all coming out sounding so hawkish. I mean, the doves have turned into the biggest hawks. Uh, they're going to hike rates. Well, if we're talking about the the meeting on the on the twenty seventh. It looks like they want to go 75. Uh, and, and let me just say that um, I'm having a little difficulty figuring this Fed out uh, because they're not being totally honest with us, okay? Because we come out of the July FOMC meeting. Mike, pull up slide. And I thought the most important, I thought the most important comment from Powell was that we were going to now become data dependent. Powell said that at the presser at the July meeting. And I said, okay, well, that means that they're going from autopilot from like, because at that point they were front running two meetings at a time. And he said, we're going to become data dependent. Well, so what's the, what's the data dependency? Commodity prices have plunged. Uh, the dollar has strengthened to a 20 year high. Uh, the Atlanta Fed right now, now cast is 1.4%, which is pretty well stagnation after two quarters of negative GDP. 
Uh, now the, the employment numbers have been mixed, but employment is, a, as we know, is a lagging indicator. Um, I, I don't see the case for 75 basis points. I mean, if I thought this was last year's economy or what we had six months ago when oil was $124 a barrel and everything was ripping on the inflation side from, and, and you were seeing these supply bottlenecks, they've all rolled over. I, I can't, so, so, so let, me, well, let me just continue. That's okay, Harley. Um, they wanna go 70, they clearly say they're data dependent. The data actually would tell them to pause right now. Pause and assess. You can always raise rates again in December uh, or in February, nothing stops them, but they're just seem to be on autopilot. Uh, so I'd say that they're gonna be very aggressive. I found it very interesting in the poll that the majority of people that are watching us right now think that the Fed is gonna go above 4% and then cut rates next year which is basically saying, yeah, I get it. The, these guys are zealots. Uh, they're gonna continue to hike interest rates and then uh, they're gonna classically overdo it and then be forced to cut interest rates. And I have a problem with this Fed because they're setting us up again for a boom bust scenario. Uh, they say they're data dependent. You see, that's why I don't know if we can trust anything they say. We are data dependent. There's not one shred of data since the last meeting telling them they should go 75 basis points. There's two. The market was thinking maybe they'll go 50. They want to go 75, but they're data dependent. But there's not Dave, a piece of data. Dave, 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 pause for one second. Wait, hold on. Dave, pause for one second. Harley, I want to hear, first, I know you want to show a couple of slides. Second, you said that there's two. I'm, I'm interested in what the two are that, that you're responding to that observation. Because I, I obviously fall into Dave's camp saying, I don't see the evidence of it. I likewise saw that data dependency language in the July meeting or in the June meeting and said, okay, we're off to the races for a period of time because the market is going to interpret that as the Fed being dovish, right? That they're, they're heading towards their pause. Um, obviously they came out very aggressively from that point. Markets did not care until they did. The Jackson Hole speech obviously turned into a bit of a catalyst. Now we're not entirely sure what's going on. You know, I'm very much hearing from my sources who are more clued into the Fed personalities that Powell has effectively laid down the law and said, we have to do this, we are doing this. If you argue with me publicly, you know, I will come out and publicly rebuke you and make you look bad. Everybody get in line behind me, otherwise you're gonna be vetoed. Um, and at the same time, we're seeing the Fed research arms themselves come out increasingly stridently. Today, the New York Fed came out and said, look, you know, hiking was something I've been saying. The risk is that we're actually creating inflationary conditions by raising interest rates and creating conditions under which necessary investment is not actually going to occur. We're not so much going to hit demand as we're going to reduce the investment that's required to reduce labor intensity at McDonald's, to reduce labor intensity in the retail sector, to reduce labor intensity in homes. You know, a really simple example of that. Somebody asked the question, right? The services sector. Remember that a primary component of the services sector used to be housekeepers, people that would come and do your laundry and clean your home, et cetera. We can absolutely capitalize those. That's what robots are. And the washing machine and dryer in your home are very rudimentary robots designed purpose-built to help you wash your clothes. Same thing for your dishwasher, your electric or gasoline or gasoline. <laughs> Natural gas stove is another example that my gasoline stove was on fire. That's why I'm thinking about it. 
the um the 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 point that i would make is is that we run a very real risk that we've actually gotten ourselves caught up in this ideologue dynamic of the only tool avail available for us is a chainsaw with which to cut the birthday cake you put that very eloquently in your note yesterday so let me hear your comment. What are the two things that you're seeing that you think Dave has missed or that I would have missed that suggests they should go 75 basis points? And then, you know, what, what slides did you want to show either in support of that or to, to raise a new point? Um, I am surprised that the poll came in at over 4% for inflation, seeing as most of our viewers and the trolls on, on, on your Twitter feeds uh, like to watch you wipe the floor with me. So um, I, I think as, as, as a win, Here's the reality, okay? This is basically proof that you can be too smart to trade. Um, there's two facts out there. Big idea, transitory people, they might've been right. They didn't shoot themselves in the foot. They shot themselves in the head, okay? And that's just how it worked out. Is it fair or not? It's not. But we have inflation at eight and a half and we have unemployment at three and a half. Those are the two facts. The Fed is not cutting rates until we get eight and a half down to three and change, and we get the three and a half up to four and change. It's just not gonna happen. And they don't care about the projections. They lost that car. They lost the ability to go play the game and be in economics. They have to go look at the newspapers and whatever number comes up, that's reality. And they're gonna trade off that period. And you're gonna see the Fed rate above 4%. So Dave, I guess we get to go and have that bet till next year. Well, I'm not gonna, um... I'm not going to say that the Fed's not going to go above 4%. Uh, it's not my forecast, but I didn't think we'd be uh, going up as much as we are right now. Uh, I'm actually flabbergasted that they're going to go 75 basis points. Uh, you know, Goldman just went from 50 to 75. Then they've gone from 25 to 50 in November, and now they've snuck in 25 from zero. This is Goldman Sachs. So everybody is revising up their Fed funds forecast, uh, you know, based on what the Fed's guidance is right now. And the guidance is incredibly- Like slide eight. The, 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 the guidance is incredibly hawkish, but I think that uh, they are, just as they, you could argue that they overstimulated in 2020, 2021, they're swinging the pendulum completely the other way. And so uh, firstly, uh, if you're taking a look at M1, M2, and the monetary base in the past four months, uh, and this was not happening last year when they were skyrocketing, money supply growth is collapsing. In fact, it's negative. The monetary base is running negative 25%. That's the root of money. Uh, so the Fed is tightening very aggressively. Of course, they're, they're tightening into an inverted yield curve. They're tightening into an environment where the median cyclical stock uh, is down 30%. Uh, from the peaks. Uh, we have a rapid strengthening in the dollar, uh, which of course, so far, I, I've mentioned that is a major disinflationary force. And they're tightening into um, a significant decline. Now, people say, but it, the level is still high. I don't care if the level is still high. Inflation is a rate of change. Uh, I mean, did Volcker ever get oil prices back down to $3.50 where it was before the OPEC embargo? No. Uh, by the time he left office, oil was sitting at around $20, $25 a barrel. It's a rate of change. And uh, we have an economy that is weakened visibly. Uh, it's actually flat on its back if it's not in a recession. 
if you're taking a look, for example, at what was really important in the Beige Book yesterday, uh, was they come out and say that uh, the Beige Book says that the economy uh, is basically stagnant, flat. Uh, and then at the end, it says that uh, the outlook is one of weakening in the next six months. So when I say, well, if we're flat now and we're weakening, it means we're going into contraction. Now, look, the reality is that Powell sounded a lot like a social worker 12 months, 24 months ago. Uh, now he comes out in Jackson Hole and says, I'm going to have to inflict pain on the household and business sector. So he's telling you right there, and he's not talking about a soft landing anymore. Now, he might mention a growth recession because I think it just sounds more politically palatable. But they're going to send the economy into a recession. Yes, we agree. And all I know is that in recessions, inflation goes down. Even in the three recessions, we had a recession in 1970, uh, 7071, 73, 75. Then we had uh, 1980. And that was the period of stagflation until Volcker took over. But I'll tell you, even in those periods where we had a recession, uh, whether it was under Arthur Burns or it was under uh, uh, Miller, uh, inflation fell significantly. Recessions, what recessions do is they kill demand. They kill demand. And so the recession is going to kill demand. Inflation is going to come down. I think it's going to come down a lot because the leading indicators, especially the dollar and commodity prices, what we're seeing in import prices, what we're seeing at the back end of the production process, I don't think there's anybody on the call that realizes that core crude PPI is negative three months now. It's actually running negative 1% year over year. You know, and, and you're right, December. I should have paid more attention to it, I suppose. I didn't, real, I, didn't think, I didn't think that we're going to be getting in with these further shocks at the beginning of the year. I, did, I didn't think it was going to take this long, Harley, for people to come back to work. Um, but you see that that resets already happened. That wage resets already happened. You're seeing it in the average early earnings data. They're starting to cool off. And the all the leading indicators of inflation are pointing in one direction. Uh, I actually think, and we modeled this out, uh, that um, by this time next year, the core PC deflator is going to be sitting below 3%. Now you're going to say, but it's not at 2 you just have to, the Fed has to be confident that it's getting towards two uh, before they shift policy. And they will shift policy. What, they always shift policy in both directions. When was the last time uh, the Fed, you know, didn't shift policy after a cycle? They will shift policy again. I, Dave, I think you, it actually will be next year. You were the owner of one of the all-time great quotes, which is cycles don't die, the Fed puts a bullet in its head. So we agree the Fed's going to go put a bullet in the head of the economy to create a recession to bring down inflation. Ipso facto, we agree. And by the way, that's a public policy good because inflation hits 60% of people, the middle three quartiles, whereas unemployment goes from what, three and a half to five? Okay, so one and a half percent of people lose their jobs. I feel bad about that, sure, but servicing 60% of the economy at the expense of 2% of the people is probably a good idea writ large for the for the for, for the nation and so what's wrong with that uh i'm not making a a, a judgment call you know on it i'm, I'm an economist I, i'm not a social worker um uh, but all i'm saying is that um recessions bring on uh characteristics that get tend to get repeated uh one of them is that 
they sow the seeds for rapid disinflation. Uh, they cause uh, risk off in financial markets. Um, and uh, until you get either a positive exogenous shock, either from uh, the supply side, look, we, we would probably would have had a recession in 1995 after Greenspan raised rates 300 basis points and flattened the yield curve if it weren't for the fact that we had a major supply shock, which was Netscape going public and ushering in the whole new internet era. That was, uh, that was glorious. Okay. Um, but Chris, what's the supply? Chris, or, or we have to get... Uh, a positive shock from fiscal okay. from monetary policy. So yeah. see, this is just, all I'm trying to say, uh, Harley, is that is that interest rates move in cycles. The economy moves in cycles. Yes. Uh, we had basically a, a massive, a one in a century shock. We had um, a global health crisis and we had a war and they combined at a time of massive monitoring fiscal stimulus to give us 16 months of inflation, which I would posit to you. And I don't, you might not agree. I don't think you do. I think 16 months is actually transitory. Uh, and all those things are in the rearview mirror. I, I mean, uh, COVID isn't completely gone, but the reaction to COVID uh, has certainly changed. People aren't nearly as scared of it. And it's not impeding the production side of the economy. Uh, the war in the Ukraine looks like it's almost hit a stalemate. The impact that's had on commodities uh, in the opening months of this year, that's in the rearview mirror. The monetary and fiscal stimulus that brought us that 16-month inflation burst, all that's in the rearview mirror. And I don't actually plan, and I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong, and I've been wrong, and I've been right, just like you have. Yep. But the one thing I will not do is drive looking through the rearview mirror. I will not hyperventilate, and I will not extrapolate what's happened in the past 12 to 18 months into the next 12 to 18 months, because everything is changing. This is not the same Fed. It's not the same fiscal policy. It's not the same commodity market. And uh, I don't know what I'm, if, if all of a sudden we have, get a new COVID, if we get something that's really horrible, I mean, who knows? If, if Putin decides I'm not gonna stop a Ukraine, I'll go into Estonia, Latvia, and Poland. I mean, who knows? I doubt that's gonna happen. That does but come we, hit, we got hit with a, in a short period of time, and it was actually hardly in the overall realm of economic history, a pretty short period of time, we got hit with a massive wave of supply side cost push inflation shocks that were exacerbated by monitoring fiscal policy. And what I'm saying is that that is all in the rearview mirror. Thank you very much. That's why I said it wasn't transitory nine months ago, but let's go. And by the way, transitory to me, you know, the way you guys are describing it is like life is transitory. Quick question and then a longer question. Are we in a recession right now? Just yes or no? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough call. I could see why people- Mike, say, fine. I'd say I'd say that, um, I, I'd say that it's, it's, it's immaterial whether we're in a recession right now. What I, what I would say to you is that that's a useless question. Okay. It's a useless question because the, the, the appropriate question is, are we going into recession? Are we going into recession? recession? The answer is that the answer, are we in a recession right now? Your viewers on this call, I think are more interested in what's gonna happen in the next six, 12, 18 months than what's happening right now. What will the front page headlines be a year from now? Has nothing to do with whether we're in a recession right now. Now I'd say that the NBER 
would probably say that we're not in a recession right now, okay? And I would say to you, I don't care because I know with there's no such thing as a sure thing, but I would say that as close as you can get to that, we will be in a recession by the fourth quarter of this year, okay? And I have my reasons for that. So whether in a recession right now, Harley, with all due respect, who cares? Are we going to be, we gonna to be in a recession I'm by the fourth quarter and into 2023? That's what matters the most. And what I'll tell you right now is that we have the Fed. What has me a nerve is what does Powell focus on? He focuses on job openings to unemployment, which I'm going to tell you, the jolts data only go back a couple of cycles. There's no time series. And because of the proliferation of, of hybrid work and remote work, which you could do anywhere, people, businesses, small businesses in particular, are flooding the country with multiple ads. The job openings numbers are ridiculous and so radically inflated. But Powell's focused on that. He's focused on the unemployment rate. He's focused on the headline inflation rate. And I'm going to tell you that the the, the, the inflation rate, the service sector inflation rate, and the and unemployment is in the index of lagging indicators that the conference board publishes every month. You want to focus, you want to join Powell. You see, that's what I mean. Powell's going to raise rates because he's focused on lagging indicators. That has me a nerve. Non-farm payrolls, God bless non-farm yeah, payrolls. They are the index of coincident indicators. But so this is, but, but this is actually leading, the index of leading indicators. Okay, yep. is down five months in a row, and the data go back six decades, and you've never failed to have a recession after the LEI. You got a Fed focused on lagging coincident indicators. They have no forward-looking anchor. Okay, which is why they're destined to make a massive policy misstep unless a destabilizing recession is actually something they view as being desirable. The LEI is down five months in a row, and it has a 100% track record in predicting a recession with a lag of about eight months. Now, remember, it peaked back in the spring. So that's telling you practically ironclad that if we're not in recession now, and maybe we're not Harley, but it doesn't really matter, it's going to start in the fourth quarter of this year. Then it's going to be a question of how long and how deep it's going to be. What will nominal GDP be in the fourth quarter then? Nominal GDP doesn't factor in because recessions are determined by real inputs, physical inputs to the economy. We never had nominal GDP go down in the 1970s. Did you know that? We didn't have GDP, nominal GDP did not go down, and yet we had three recessions separated 10 years apart. So Obviously. if you're going to ask, so I would say that I would never ask anybody who knows anything about the economy, can you have a recession with nominal GDP at 9%? So, because the so, yes, so, the answer is absolutely, because guess absolutely what? You, you can have yeah. recessions with nominal GDP. So Dave, uh, Dave let, me, let, me, let me pause you for one second, because I think part of what is actually happening here is actually a really important debate that factors in significantly. So one is those of us who looked at the environment and used the language transitory and continue to emphasize the deflationary characteristics that face the world broadly. I think Harley is correct. Our credibility was damaged and included in that, I would argue, is the research staff at the Fed. The question that you're raising now, and I think it's one that is very appropriate to put back to Harley, is, is this question of 
inflation having not proved as transitory or have prices having sustained at a higher level and increased more than most of us would have expected, given those dynamics, is what Powell is doing on a prophylactic basis. So Powell is basically saying, we have to make sure we don't let things escape off this level. Is that actually, you know, one, is he likely to follow through? I think you and I would both say it's very clear he's planning on following through. The second question, I think, is the one that you and I are more focused, you know, so Harley is focused on it from the standpoint of, can I make a trade against Fed funds futures right now? And I think we're all somewhat in agreement saying, no, the Fed has, has now demonstrated their commitment to hiking interest rates until some severely adverse event occurs. That's why it matters whether there's a recession either now or near in the future, some event that's going to force them to change. I don't think anybody on this call believes that they are going to change of their own volition. And I do think that language continues to stand in the way of us kind of making progress, right? We're arguing. What are the Fed's intentions? What does Powell want to do? Not what ultimately is Powell going to be forced to do by the exigent circumstances. I also would just highlight, Harley, that the slides that you put up, for example, showing, you know, is policy restrictive, fails the very basic test. You're using a lagging inflation number against a forward interest rate number. Those two don't have any relationship whatsoever. And so when you, when you present something like that and say, well, that's evidence that policy is not restrictive and fail to take, it, take into account exactly what Dave is saying, which is a collapse in the LEIs. I mean, there's an outright collapse if I look at the consumer goods, new orders, components, et cetera. I, I feel like you're, you're falling into the same trap that Powell seems to be saying now, which is, and this is what I'm hearing from those who have much better color in terms of the personalities behind the Fed. I'm not a Fed watcher in that way. What I've basically been told is, is that Powell has decided that he was misled and abused by the research staff and by the other Fed presidents, and now he doesn't care anymore. He's simply going to crush inflation because he thinks that's his path to, to being history, you know, being in the history books and being treated favorably. I personally think he's headed for a Thomas Mellon sort of dynamic, but Andrew Mellon type dynamic. But, you know, does that feel fair, Harley, in terms of trying to summarize where we're struggling? No. No. Yes. Okay. Look, you guys are stating your, look, first, let's stipulate you guys are smarter than me. Okay. So that's a given. Away from that, if you guys have your facts and your data, the LEI, the car sales, and all this stuff, predicting things forward. You, you had those last October and December and it didn't work. So all I'm saying is if it didn't work then, why are you so much more confident that it's gonna work now? And I just, um, I, the reason why I was so bullish on inflation, you know, six months ago, nine months ago, was exactly as you described, Dave, that, that Biden went and tossed, you know, money into the, into, into the fireplace and poof up it went into inflation. And we had COVID which restricted um, the supply of workers. And all I'm saying now is that you that Powell is going to go look at these numbers and he's not going to go and take, you know, he's not going to take his foot off the gas until he sees that GDP number, you know, come down, sees inflation come down, unemployment go up. It, it doesn't really matter whether, whether it's good or bad public policy. I'm just saying what I think he's going to go and do. So again, this is, I do think, where the challenge exists. I don't think either Dave 
or I are arguing about what Powell is going to do. I think that's probably pretty accurately priced into the Fed futures, and that's exactly what our survey results came back as showing. No, I think that I think the, the futures market has rates being cut next year, and I think I think they're going up. So well, you what, think what, 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 not coming Harley, down? What, what do you know? What do you know about next year? What well, do you know, know about next year? I, I mean, you you had Powell in October of 2018 is saying that we're going to have to take the funds rate above neutral. Neutral back then, their estimate was 3%. They didn't, they didn't come 50 basis points. So, so what did you know? So we, what were you saying back in October 2018 when Powell sounded very hawkish? They're going to raise rates above neutral uh, and he ended up cutting rates three times in 2019. So, I, I mean, to again, you're extrapolating today to the next 12 months. Uh, I think that we have seen Powell shift uh, and, and all the central bankers have shifted, okay? They always shift. Um, you never would have guessed in the first trading day of the year in 2001 uh, that Greenspan was going to cut interest rates. Uh, they, they, as recently as a few months earlier, had a tightening bias on the books. Uh, they had taken the funds rate up to six and a half percent after it was proven that you know that uh, that Y2K didn't prove to be the uh, Edgar Denny disaster. They raised rates. They went on hold. He's cutting rates. Nobody predicted they were going to cut rates. Of course, what Greenspan saw at the beginning of 2000 was that it wasn't just a tech wreck. There was actually a, a serious detonation taking place uh, in the technology capital stock. He switched gears. You, you could not have predicted if you're telling me that in January of 2000, as the Fed is tightening like crazy, that they're going to cut interest rates in January of 2001, uh, you'd have been carried out in a gurney. If you'd have told anybody uh, in the summer of 08, and Trichet raised rates, that the next move by these global central banks is going to be to cut interest rates, you'd have been carried out in a gurney. Uh, if you would have thought, if you would have said back at, at the beginning of 95, when the Fed went 75 basis points in November 94, 50 in February, uh, I mean, I, if you told anybody that in, in the second half of 1995, Greenspan's going to be cutting interest rates, which again, he did three times, you'd have been carried out on a gurney. So I, I would just say that maybe a sense of history here that all these Fed people, all these Fed people will shift. Uh, and then they'll shift in both directions. Um, so I think that they've already overdone it. Um, I think that the commodity markets are telling you where inflation's going. The US dollar is telling you where inflation's going. The contraction of the money supply is telling you where inflation is going. And all the Fed has to do is be convinced that uh, the July numbers, July, Again, they're data dependent. Well, let's see about that. We had negative 0.1 on the core on the PC deflator, 0, 0.0 on the core PC deflator, and they're going 75 basis points. Well, they want to be sure that this is going to be a trend they can rely on. By this time next year, I'm pretty sure looking at all the leading indicators for inflation right now, not where they were a year ago, where they are now, they will be cutting interest rates. And it has nothing to do with their credibility. Because market forces will dictate that. We maybe give a little too much reliance to the Fed. Okay, interest rates will be dictated as well by supply and demand forces in the economy. Dave, and interest rates by their nature, interest rates by their nature are cyclical. So it makes no sense to me. You think we're going in a recession 
and you don't think rates are going to come down? I got news for you, Harley. That's never happened before. That will happen. All I'm saying is this. I will stipulate once again, the economic numbers, you're right. I mean, you and Lacey, two best guys out there. I'm so glad we've had you on the show. What I do know is human nature and ego. And if you look at our politics, it's not about public policy good. It's just about ego and everything else. At Merrill Lynch, what killed the firm? Stan had a big ego. He didn't like Goldman and Bayer getting paid more than he was. And he, so he bought a subprime company at the top of the market and took the whole firm down. It was all ego. It wasn't rocket science and thinking. What I'm saying right now is that Powell is up against the wall and his ego is going to go and not let him cut rates in anticipation of what you are probably correct about. I think he's going to go and be way behind the curve. And he's going to go and, as you said, you know, put a bullet ahead of the economy to, to, to create the reduction in inflation. That's all I'm saying. So it's just ego. And, and, and again, like that's part of the point that I was trying to make. I do think that's actually part of the distinction. Dave and I are saying the Fed is behind the curve, but not in the manner that you're describing. We would argue that the Fed was behind the curve in 21 and is now behind the curve in the opposite direction as we go into 22. That, I think, is, is actually unfortunately being borne out. And I would emphasize that everything that you're highlighting, right? So if I look at oil prices, they're now only up 14% year over year. If I look and I project forward one more month, they're almost certainly going to be down year over year, unless there's a big rally in oil prices over the next month or so. With the driving season now behind us, with demand destruction clearly there, it strikes me as surprising if it were to occur. The um, used car prices that you reference, that was actually in January and February of this year that we did with Lacey Hunt. And we absolutely tagged the top of the used car pricing market. Used car prices on CPI terms are now down from that point. That was the peak in the market. As Dave is pointing out, lumber prices, grain prices, meat prices, et cetera, they're all falling now. Didn't Lacey so, to buy 30-year zeros at that time on that podcast? I, again, trading calls people get wrong. Economic calls people get wrong. Pointing to mistakes that people have made is not going to make their future forecasts any more reliable or unreliable. Oh. If I'm using some slides that um, are not officially compliance uh, 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 <laughs> preserved, and so I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I just want to actually share a couple of these these shots here quickly so i want people to be able to see this right so one there's the used car prices alongside the date of the lacy presentation here's energy prices right so this is a strip in crude oil prices it's now up 14 percent as i go look forward one more month you know october we're basically flat right and that's unless prices recover uh, industrial production, Dave was hitting on. Um, this is looking at commodity prices. Following the GFC, we had almost the exact same point increase in this index as we did coming off of 2020. Almost exactly the same. It was a higher percentage by a marginal amount because prices were so much lower. But exactly as Dave is pointing out, we've now turned lower, right? If I look at a forward lurking metric of inflation or real interest rates. Here I'm using Fed funds rate relative to the two-year inflation break-even. 
we're now positive for the first time since 2018, basically, when we managed to send the economy into a deflationary tailspin in the fourth quarter of 2018. We haven't had real interest rates on this metric for an incredibly long period of time, and we're seeing the deceleration that suggests that this is a more accurate picture than the massively negative real interest rates that you showed in your chart. The last thing I would point out is this is the relationship between interest rates and unemployment, between inflation and unemployment, right? And I can put it on a contemporary basis. And so here to orient people on the x-axis, we're looking at unemployment rates. On the y-axis, we're looking at inflation. Man, this is a Phillips curve back to 1970. I don't see a relationship here. You know what, though? We should probably lag it. I guess if we do it on a 12-month basis, we'll get clarity. Man, that doesn't work either. You know what, let's try 24 months because clearly we're not lagging enough. We need to look forward. Oh my gosh, we have no relationship and you're telling me that this is what the Fed is relying on because in, unemployment is low and inflation is high. We have to hike interest rates. There's no relationship here, Harley. Dave, take my side over here. Come on, man. Dave, can I said add something, go into can recession. I, can I add something to, the, uh, to the conversation? Please. I don't have charts, but... I'm an economic historian, okay? And we're talking about transitory, although I don't think that really matters anymore. It's just to maybe have a fun debate that the transitory people were completely out to lunch. Uh, I don't believe that, by the way. Uh, you go back, for example, in 1986, uh, when oil plunged to almost $10 a barrel. Uh, and then you went in the next four years to Operation Desert Sealed and Desert Storm, the Iraq War One, where oil went to forty dollars. Um, inflation went from basically zero in a four-year period uh, to call it roughly five or six percent. So I don't know, Harley. I mean, I, I would call that non-transitory. That was four years, and admittedly, inflation uh, didn't go above eight percent, but we didn't have the series of shocks. But inflation did go up quite a bit over four years. It's not as if we haven't seen something like this before. If you want to go back to uh, the commodity super cycle, uh, back when Harley and I were working with each other. So after the tech wreck and everything that happened after that, inflation basically went from zero. And as I said, by the time oil prices hit $150 or thereabouts in the summer of 08, inflation was 6%. Harley, inflation went from zero to 6% in a five-year span. I would say that that's not transitory, that's a real bona fide cycle of inflation. Yeah. And all these get snuffed out by the central banks. So, so David, you're, you're telling me that inflation for 16 months, 60, I just gave you two examples where inflation went up in a cycle four or five years. I don't hear you saying anything about those cycles. <laughs> this cycle was 16 months. And I would still say, yeah, that was transitory. And I don't know, even the biggest bond uh, bears and inflation hawks, of course, we didn't see inflation getting this high. Absolutely correct. Yesterday's story, 16 months in terms of duration, and now it's all in the rearview mirror. Money supply contraction, fiscal contraction, the money supply contraction, fiscal contraction back to 1960. We've never seen this before. A 15% run-up in the U.S. dollar, what commodity prices are doing, they haven't even factored into the data yet. And then we've got the supply and demand curve shifting. They are shifting supply. This is brand spanking new. The supply curve is actually 
now superseding the demand curve. This is what economists call the reemergence of the disinflationary output gap. And inflation is going to come down. I'm not saying it's going to come down to 2% of the next year. I think it's going to approach 2%. I certainly think that underlying inflation will get close to 3%. You don't need to get to 2%. And, you know, we all, we all sit here talking about the great inflation dragon slayer, Paul Volcker. And guess what? What is, who is uh, Jay Powell comparing himself to constantly is Paul Volcker. Paul Volcker was the biggest interest rate cutter in the United States of all time. Nobody, nobody in 1981, 82, and 83 cut interest rates as much as Paul Volcker did. He's the biggest hiker. That's what I'm saying. For anybody who's trading Fed futures contracts into next year, just know that the biggest inflation dragon slayer of all time was also the biggest interest rate cutter of all time. Thank you. So people, so something the, to put the clock's running out clock. over here. I want to say one thing. Number one, Dave, I love you, baby. Number two is people, Dave has deja vu right now. This was every Tuesday morning at 7.30 on the seventh floor conference room. <laughs> it reminds me of many of the arguments I had as well. And I, I, I will tell you that there's definitely a component of perhaps what I would describe as overconfidence from both Dave and I in relying on our familiarity with the economic history from those time periods. As, as with both of us being economic historians, we lean in that direction. Unfortunately, this is yet another Keeping It Simple episode in which we did not resolve the debate. I have to confess that I think that the compelling argument is still on the side of the disinflationists. The idea that this has been a transitory, as Dave points out, 16-month episode that has now peaked and is likely to retreat with obvious stochastic outcomes. If Russia decides to expand the war, if you know a uh, comet crashes into uh, the, the U.S. Uh, Midwest and, and wipes out you know massive quantities of crops. I do not expect to be held to an inflation forecast under those conditions. <laughs> However, I would argue that the underlying phenomenon still is one in which the world has more and more every year and in many ways less and less demand. So we're going to flip it back over. I want to echo exactly what Harley said. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. We do have an audience. We try to keep ourselves tight on schedule. And Shang showing up is the sign that we are getting the proverbial sheep's hook. Chang, thank you much. Take us home. That was excellent. There's never a dull moment on keeping it simple. And for folks at home, thank you for tuning in. And thank you again, David, for a great discussion. Uh, one more time for our viewers today, David and his team have kindly offered a one-month free trial to Rosenberg Research. To get access, simply send an email to information at rosenbergresearch.com. Again, that's information at rosenbergresearch.com. And certainly follow him on Twitter, where he tweets under the handle at econguyrosie. That's at EconGuyRosie, R-O-S-I-E. Uh, keeping it simple, we'll be taking a break actually in October, but do join us again in November where we'll be hosting Dean Kernett of Macro Risk Advisors. We do have some other exciting content lined up for October though, so stay tuned. Uh, with that, thank you everyone for joining and have a great evening. But before you drop off, I'm sorry, I just want to mention why we're on hiatus in October is because we have our annual ETF event that will be broadcast over Real Vision as well as on our and available for replay on our YouTube channel. Um, we will have an extraordinary uh, panel of guests there. We have um, uh, myself sitting down 
um, with Josh Wolf, we have, uh, oh my God, I'm totally blanking on, on, on names here. Um, Mike Novogratz is joining us, as is um, uh, Jim Chanos, as well as star-studded panels that include everyone from myself, Jim Bianco, uh, et cetera. So I really encourage people to check that out, tune in, and skip your, your uh, monthly kiss, uh, knowing full well that you're getting a full day of entertainment. If you're going to be in the New York area, please reach out to your, to your Simplify Salesforce representative. We'll try to accommodate you at the New York Stock Exchange if you can join us. It's a great lineup. It's an, it's an extraordinary lineup. We're really, really fortunate to be able to do this again for Coney Island Prep. Last year, we raised in excess of $35,000. I'd love to see us crush that this year. So... Dave, we will be hitting you up with a donation and hopefully you'll be able to join us next year uh, for our third annual event. Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Simplify Asset Management, Inc. and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy. This website and information are not intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. This content is solely for informational purposes and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. These materials are made available on an as-is basis without representation or warranty. The information contained in these materials has been obtained from sources that Simplify Asset Management Inc. believes to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. This information is only current as of the date indicated and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Neither the author nor Simplify Asset Management Inc. undertakes to advise you of any changes in the views expressed herein. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Unless otherwise noted, any performance returns presented in these materials reflect hypothetical performance. Hypothetical strategies and indices presented are unmanaged, do not reflect any fees, expenses, transaction costs, commissions, or taxes, and one cannot invest directly in any of these. The results presented should not be viewed as indicative of the advisor's skill and do not reflect the performance results that were achieved by any particular client. During this period, the advisor was not providing advice using this model, and clients' results may have been materially different. Hypothetical model results have many inherent limitations, some of which, but not all, are described herein. One of the limitations of hypothetical performance results is that they are generally prepared with the benefit of hindsight. In addition, hypothetical trading does not involve financial risk, and no hypothetical trading record can completely account for the impact of financial risk in actual trading.